Hey there, welcome to the Rim Church Podcast. We're so glad you found us. The Rim Church is based in San Antonio, Texas, and we believe in loving Jesus, building family, and changing the world. Wherever you find yourself today, we trust that it is not by accident that you're listening to this message, and we believe that God has something to speak to you right where you are. For more information on what we're all about, go ahead and visit us at therim.church or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We hope you enjoyed the message. Amen. You can have a seat. If I were to ask you this morning, how would you describe the Western American culture? What would you say? Busy. Busy. Okay. Entitled. Entitled. Okay. Consumeristic. Individualistic. Okay. What else? Fast, sorry, thank you, fast, yeah. Anxious. Overindulgent. Overindulgent, yeah. Confused. Decadent. Okay, maybe one or two more. Instantly gratified. Lazy. Distracted, yeah. That's all, all that is true, yes. Now, if I were to ask you to describe the Western American church culture, what would you say? Same. Okay, same thing again. Okay. It's not one right answer. I'm just asking the question. Any other thoughts? Experimental. Okay. Privileged. Segregated. Divided. Blessed. Solid, full of resources, consumer, one or two more, weary, diversity, okay, yeah. Well, if we hadn't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Austin Johnson, I'm one of the pastors here at The Rim, and today we're continuing our sermon series going through the book of 1 Corinthians together. Our tagline is love, Jesus, and the people who make it difficult. Now, if you're hopping in for the first time this week, spoiler alert, the people who make it difficult is us most of the time. But we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10. The reason we're looking at those three chapters together, number one, that means we won't be able to read all of each of those three chapters, but it is one thought that Paul is talking about in those three chapters. And it's really this idea of how do we engage with culture? Inside the church and outside the church. What's the relationship like? How do we actually engage culture? The late Tim Keller, he would say this. A society's culture is a set of shared practices attitudes, values, and beliefs, which are rooted in common understandings of the big questions of life, where life comes from, what life means, who we are, what's important to spend our time doing and the years allotted to us. No one can live without some assumed answers to these questions, and every set of answers shapes culture. 
So when you look at culture, the American culture, the American culture in the church, you begin to ask questions, and what we see is ultimately a reflection of what we believe. So how do they begin to relate to one another? We're going to see in, in these chapters that Paul is speaking to this Corinthian church about the issue of food, which was a big deal for them. So this was a, a church plant. None of them had grown up as Christians. They were all coming out of the prevailing culture of their city. And one of the prevailing culture aspects of their city was this idea of food that had first been offered to idols. It was one piece. The second piece is, can I have dinner at a temple for another idol? That was super normal and common in their culture because they believed, that culture believed that the, the meat and the food was unclean. It had demons inside of it. And so they had to present the food to their idol so that it would be cleansed so then they, that they could eat it. So they're asking, you know, there's these two subsets of, of people that, hey, I think it's okay. Other people are like, no, I don't think that's okay. And then there's, there's the question of people would just throw these dinner parties. It was just normal for their culture. They'd throw these parties. They'd, they'd invite people over. But the event space would have been the local temple to whatever idol. It wasn't even necessarily going to be an act of worship. It was just that was their event venue. They would invite people over for dinner. So the question is, for these, this Corinthian church that's coming out of this prevailing culture, what's their relationship going to be like? How are they going to interact with the culture around them? My uncle, he's a, a pastor, and he used to always say, say this about movies. I, I love movies. He loved movies. But when you go to a movie, you get a glimpse into the heart of the culture. And when you don't just enjoy the movie and consume it, but you begin to ask questions, look, you just go and see a movie. That is showing you what's actually at the heart of our culture. What do we care about? What do we value? So for this church plant in Corinth, these were the really big questions. How do we relate to the culture that we just came out of? What's acceptable for us? So as we go through these chapters, 8 through 10, that's kind of the conversation we're going to be having today. How do we engage culture? What's the relationship like? If you haven't already, I'd love to invite you to open up your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll just start in verse 1. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. So again, Paul's speaking to this idea that about food sacrifice to idols. He's addressing the, one of the main cultural issues of the day. And he's talking about their, this idea of knowledge. That's this group of believers that goes, hey, yeah, we're good. We can eat the food. Not a big deal. Their argument was, hey, God created everything. Therefore, we know idols aren't actually real. So this food should be totally okay. You see this in, in verse four. This would be their argument. We know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, 
the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. So the argument these believers were making was, hey, we've got, we, we understand that this food and these idols, they're not actually real. So it's okay for us to eat the food. It's just food. God's made all things clean. So our relationship is we can, we can, we've got the superior knowledge. But the problem was, there was another group of believers in the church that, and this was kind of offensive to them, or they, 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 they didn't really understand why they were eating the food. Now, historically, when it comes to engaging culture, Christians have taken three different stances called the conversionist, the political, and the separatist. There's the three ways historically that Christians have tried to engage with culture. The conversionist believes that the way to change a culture is to change individual hearts through personal conversion. Then, supposedly, the culture would change automatically. As people begin to enter into a relationship with Jesus, by default, the culture is going to change. That's the conversionist method. The second one is the political. They believe that over centuries, those who had political power, they could use it to enact laws that were directly based on Christian theology, biblical values. That was their strategy. We're, we're going to make sure everybody lives into a Christian lifestyle, and so therefore we hope that they're going to live into God's kingdom. The third one, the separatist, it rejects any idea of Christians trying to actually influence culture. It insists that we should reflect Christian values within our own churches, but we should not try to influence society in any particularly Christian direction. Now, there may be merits to each of these different approaches. There's pros, and there's, there's cons. But the question for the Corinthian church and what we have to wrestle with today is we do live around another culture. You remember the, the familiar, the verse, be in the world, but not of the world. So what does that actually mean? If you go to work, unless you are fully remote, but at some point you still have to jump on a Zoom call with somebody at some point, there's probably going to be somebody that you interact with that does not share your same culture, same set of values, same set of beliefs. So how do you engage with them? So if you're taking notes this morning, point number one that we're gonna see in this text is we engage the culture around us by cultivating doorways, not roadblocks. We engage culture by cultivating doorways, not roadblocks. Listen to what Paul continues in verse 7. However, not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food that was sacrificed to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We're not worse off if we don't eat. We're not better if we do eat. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. 
And then in verse 12, now when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. We engage culture internally in the church by trying to create doorways for people to access Jesus than roadblocks to keep them from it. If there's something that might be offensive of, in this scenario, of eating meat, or a common one today, um, my parents and I have different views on alcohol. I won't tell you who, who believes which, which way, but for each of us to go, I love my brother or my sister enough that I don't want to put anything in the way of them experiencing Jesus or in the way that would be offensive to them. We engage culture by cultivating doorways, not roadblocks. Because there's these two groups. One group, they knew, hey, this food, it all comes from God, it should be fine. But I was reading this week and I heard this Francis Chan quote, we can have our facts right, but our hearts wrong. We can have our facts right, but our hearts wrong. Because engaging culture isn't about winning an argument. It's not actually about facts. It's about God has come and is pursuing a relationship of trust. He's coming after not just what we do. He's coming after our hearts. Throughout scripture, when we see God speaking with humanity, but what's going wrong? We see him, he comes and he asks questions. Hey, where are you? Who killed your brother? Why are you afraid? It's because we aren't just after the mind of the culture. We're after the heart. God's after the heart of humanity. So we want to create doorways, not roadblocks. And so when it comes to engaging culture internally, different people have different consciences, different convictions about what's appropriate. What Paul is communicating here is that when it comes to family matters in the church or disagreements, that we would pursue the edification and service of someone else above ourselves. That we would put someone else's experience with Jesus above our own preferences. We would die to our own desires if needed. That we would not put a stumbling block in front of someone else. Because here's the reality. We have to be in this for the long haul. There's this massive plan that God has that he wants to restore all things to how he created them. And that's a long-term thing. We're not just here to win short-term battles. We're here for the long haul to see beauty restored. So in chapter 9, Paul begins to expand this thought. So they begin to have this conversation of, okay, how do we relate to the culture? I'm going to put somebody else's needs above my own. But he begins to talk about the idea of Christian freedom and liberty and rights. What does it mean to be free and to engage culture? Let's see what he says in verse 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? My defense to those who examine me is this. Don't we have the right to eat and drink? 
Don't we have the right to be accompanied by a believing wife like the other apostles, the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I have no right to refrain from working? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit? Or who shepherds a flock and does not drink the milk from the flock? Paul's making the argument here that he is free and has every right to engage in a culture that, in a way that other believers are. So another question, Paul, he didn't have a wife. Well, he has, does he have that right? Absolutely. Does he have the right to maybe eat this food? Absolutely. But there's a conscious decision that he's putting his own rights aside. Because here's an important point. When it comes to engaging culture, what we deem is appropriate or inappropriate, most of the time we judge what's appropriate based on the people around us. So I see what this Christian or this pastor is doing or is not doing. So okay, if they're doing it, then either I can do it or I can't do it. But the reality is, and I think what Paul is, is, is speaking of here, we don't, in engaging culture, we don't compare ourselves simply to one another. We compare ourselves to what Jesus is asking of us. And that may be different than what he's asking for, of somebody else. Do you have the right to? Sure. But Paul's point is the standard we measure our life against is not the person beside us. It's Jesus in front of us. It's not about what someone else can or can't do. What is Jesus asking you? And am I willing to go where Jesus is asking me to go and do what he is asking me to do? So this question I think we have to answer when it comes to engaging culture, what's the end goal? What's the end goal? Is it to win the argument or have a seat at the table? And at the table, we get to invite people to come and see the beauty of Jesus. My wife and I, we're walking through the story of God with some other people from the rim, and it's, it's, been, it's been awesome. And we've been reminded again and again that God's looking for a relationship of trust with humanity. That his ultimate mission is to fill the earth with his goodness, his glory, his beauty, that all things would be good and right. His basic plan is this, he created the world good, full of beauty, purpose, goodness, peace. But the world has fallen into a state of brokenness. But God's planned redemption for humanity, for the world, through the work of his son, and one day, all things will become new and restored back to how he intended it to be. The mission of God's story is redemption. This earth of humanity. But his plan of redemption is not to take people out of the world. But to invite them to partner with him to see his kingdom come in the world. To see God's kingdom come, the coming of his kingdom, to save not only individuals, but a community and a culture. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 11 says this, If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it too much if we reap material benefits from you? If others have this right to receive benefits from you, don't we even more? 
Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. Jump down to verse 19. Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I've made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may be every possible means by every possible means save some. Now I, I do all this because of the gospel so that I may share in the blessings. But don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize. So run in such a way to, to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I will not myself be disqualified. This is point number two. We engage culture as servants, not as politicians. We engage culture as servants, not as politicians. Politicians have a tendency to become whatever you want them to be. If you look at the, the lifespan of a politician in office, when the platform they started with and the platform they ended with is probably going to look a little bit different. Because over the course of, of them being in public office, they're going to change whatever it is that they need to change to stay in public office. They've compromised, but they've compromised for their own personal gain to stay in office, to keep power, to have influence. So what we see Paul communicating here is that we don't engage as politicians, but as servants, because there is a reality. Paul is saying, hey, I'm becoming all things to all people, but the end goal is totally different. It's not so that he can stay in political office or power, but that people might catch a glimpse of the beauty of Jesus. Not a changing who you are kind of way, but a becoming all things to all people. I want to build a bridge into someone's world to understand what makes them tick so that I know how to show them how Jesus is relevant and personal in their life. We engage culture as servants, not as politicians. That as believers, we should be a people totally committed to the good of our city as a whole. Not just having a culture that counters the values of the city, but that we would actually be for our city. But, but Paul mentions this. There's a cost that comes with engaging culture, becoming all things to all people. And the cost is calling the shots. Sometimes the cost is your liberty and your freedom. 
And you're right. The cost is decreasing. Putting someone else above yourself. John the Baptist would, would say it this way in John 3, 29 through, through 30. He who has the bride is the groom. But the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Again, I heard in researching this week, I heard this from Francis Chan. But in our American culture and perspective, oftentimes we look at this verse and yeah, I may agree with that, but unconsciously I believe if I increase, then Jesus increases more. Well, if I get this promotion, then I can use this extra money to bless people more. But we twisted of actually pursuing our own increasing so that then Jesus can increase more. Now I'm not saying that God doesn't bless his people, believe that, that he does. But this is speaking that we would decrease, that he might increase. And that we would be careful not to flip that of, well, if I just got this better job, I'm not saying that God, you, you, you can't have that job, but what's our actual motivation? And are we willing to be people that decrease, that he might increase? Because if our engagement of the culture is about anything other than God's kingdom coming, We've missed it. We've got a picture that's too small. Because for Paul, freedom is not the most foundational thing. Love is. That brings us to point number three. We engage culture intentionally, not passively. This may go without saying, but we engage culture intentionally, not Passively. Because one of two things will happen between a church and culture. Either culture will lull the church to sleep, and it won't actually be any different than the prevailing culture itself. We said that at the very beginning. What's the difference? Sometimes it's hard to tell. If we engage culture passively, culture will slowly begin to absorb us. But in chapter 10, Paul calls on this church to remember, to look at the history of the nation of Israel and remember what happened when they allowed culture to passively bring them in. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat to eat and drink and they got up to party. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people died. 
Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. And don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. We can't engage culture passively because culture will eventually swallow us up. Paul's saying, look at the history books. This stuff isn't new. We're going to be absorbed if we are not intentional. This is why I would say it's so important that what we experience here on Sundays or in your community group cannot just stay in those places. We have to be people that have integrated faith. That what we hear on a Sunday or on a Wednesday night, if that doesn't impact how I walk into work on Monday, we will eventually be lulled to sleep and not even know it. That's the scary thing. We'll be lulled to sleep and not even know it. That we be people that are integrated. Because his commission is to fill the earth with his beauty and goodness, to be fruitful and multiply. This commission cannot be fulfilled just in our Christian circles. If you think about that, God's mission to fill all things with his glory and his goodness doesn't just happen in our Christian circles because there are places that are not yet beautiful that he's invited us to go into. So if we do not live integrated lives and when we step into our workplace and view that as a place that we have been called and commissioned to to fill with God's glory, we will eventually be lulled to sleep. Because the reality is, it's not a question of if we are being formed, but to what end are we being formed? Nothing we do is passive, whether we're conscious of it or not. Everything is either is forming us to an ultimate end. The question is just, is that end God's kingdom or the kingdom of self? 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 24 says this. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. We engage culture as an opportunity to bless those around us, to seek the good of the people around us, our neighbors, our coworkers. He continues in verse 25. Eat everything that's sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience, since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. If any of the unbelievers invites you over and you want to go, eat everything that's set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. But if someone says to you, this is food from a sacrifice, do not eat it out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean just for your own conscience, but for the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. 
Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also try to please everyone and everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many so they may be saved. The end of all things is God's glory filling the earth. The reality that's underneath all of this is that we won't engage culture until we have first and foremost personally come and seen God's kingdom and the culture of the kingdom as more beautiful. We've heard stories, maybe, about what God's coming kingdom is going to be, that his kingdom has come now, but ultimately we will not actually engage culture and invite people to come and see the kingdom until we first and foremost have seen Jesus and gaze upon him and behold him. That we must be a people that learn to behold Jesus. That we learn how to see him. We don't just say Jesus is better because we know that's the right answer and we learned that in Sunday school growing up. But we be people that we have tasted and seen that he is good. We're inviting people into something, a place that we have been ourselves. If you hang out with me for any amount of time, you quickly learn that I'm a Leeds United fan. So for those of you who don't know, that's what us Americans called soccer uh, in England. And I, I would watch the games on, on TV, and it was awesome. Huge, massive fan. But last year, my wife got me tickets to actually go to England and watch them play. Now, I've been to Texas A&M football games and they're really exciting, 100,000 people. But there is something magical about being in that stadium with 36,000 people where they are chanting the entire game. They're going absolutely nuts. When I, if people are interested in soccer or football and you're talking to me, the way I talk about it now is totally different because I've been there. And I've sung the songs. There's an experience that I've had. It's not just, oh, we've got these really exciting fans. There's a, I've been there, I've experienced it, and it is amazing. Better than any other sports team in the world. But the same thing for us, can we say that of Jesus? Not just we're telling what, of someone else's experience, but can we invite them into what we first and foremost have experienced ourselves? Because the kingdom has come and is coming nearer. So do you want to see? Do you want to receive? Will you receive Jesus' calling to engage culture with an open table as a servant and intentionally? Are you okay staying just where you are? Let's take 120 seconds just to sit and ask Jesus, what, what are you saying to me this morning? Thanks so much for listening. We hope that today's message resonated with you. It's our hope that you wouldn't be merely inspired, but that you would actually be transformed by something you heard today. At The Rim Church, we always ask two questions when processing God's Word. What is God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? We encourage you to take a moment, reflect, and then to share with a friend or send us a message. We'd love to hear what God is teaching you and how we can help you take your next step in obedience. Until we meet again, we love you, church.